Hey there, everyone. This is Chris Huslidge, co-producer of Radio Film School. I know what you're thinking. And yes, I really do exist. I show up every now and then, and I hope to make more appearances as we enter the second season of Radio Film School. This is my first time running completely solo, so if you guys would be kind, that would be most gracious. Before we get started, just a couple of things. First off, for all those who have spread the word or rated us in iTunes, thank you. It helps us tremendously. Second, those who are Dare Dreamer FM Premium members help support this podcast and get access to ebooks, templates, discounts on other services, and much more, all for the same price of a Vente Iced Caramel Macchiato. If you are not a member yet and would like to support us, just go to daredreamer.fm slash join to sign up. Now, as Ron likes to say, on with the show. I I wasted so many years with that kind of lie of I will start making my own stuff just as soon as I earn enough money, just as soon as um, I've got enough time. All I need to do is, you know, get a few more gigs and then I'll have the time or the the money to do this. And the lie is the right amount of time or, or the right time or the right amount of money or the right whatever, whatever just never arrives. There's a reason we like to call this show This American Life for Filmmakers. As a radio documentary podcast, we usually just pull from each interview the sound bites needed for any particular episode. But every now and then, there's a full interview so full of juicy filmmaking and creative goodness, it just feels like a shame not to share the whole thing with you guys. This is Radio Film School Raw. Radio Film School interviews that are uncut, unfiltered, and unbelievable. And today, we have another amazing filmmaker. History loves winners. You know, the stories of great achievements by brilliant people. But actually, almost all of these stories are missing their most important detail. To see what that is, we have to start by looking not at history's winners, but at its losers. Their stories are all over the history books, if you know where to look. For example, we take something like The Last Supper and we say to ourselves, this is the work of a genius. But actually, the guy who painted it, Leonardo da Vinci, was kind of a loser. That's a clip from the video essay, The Long Game, Why Leonardo da Vinci Was a Loser, by filmmaker and video essayist extraordinaire Adam Westbrook of Delve.tv. Just over two years ago, Adam began creating very meticulously crafted video essays, starting with the one you just heard. In that time, he's created eight of them. Six of those eight have been awarded the prize Vimeo staff pick. And once you see them, you'll know why. Ron interviewed Adam earlier this year, and you've already heard part of that interview in the Hitchcock episode back in June, as well as the season one finale. Today, you're in for a treat as you get to hear Ron's entire interview with Adam, They talk about how Adam first got into making video essays, what sets his work apart from other video essays, what success really means to him, and whether or not he actually considers himself successful. His response to people waiting for the stars to align properly before doing their own work, Hitchcock, of course, and much, much more. It's over an hour of inspiration and insight that I know you will enjoy. So here's Ron's interview with Adam Westbrook, uncut, unfiltered, and unbelievable. Hello, Adam. Hi there, Ron. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, very well. Now, you live in Paris, is it? Uh, at the moment, I do, yeah. Um, I've got a, a, a sort of nomadic uh, lifestyle. So I'm sort <laughs> of sometimes in Paris and sometimes in London. Um, I was in Berlin for a bit last year. Um, 
so yeah, lots of lots of living out of a suitcase, which I'm start which sound which was great when I started, and now I'm starting to sort of get tired of it and, and looking for somewhere to to put my feet down eventually. But yes, right now I'm in I'm in the city of lights. Yeah. So how did that nomadic lifestyle start for you? What prompted it? Um, well, before I um, I started moving, I was uh, living in London, and I'd been there for about let me think four coming up to four years. Um, uh, and I'd been basically trying to establish myself as a as a freelancer there. Um, and just after a while, I was just starting to feel that London wasn't quite working out for me, I guess. Um, I often talk when I tell people about it, I try and explain it. I sort of talk about values in, in the sense that, you know, I don't know if this is true or not, but perhaps how a certain place has uh, has a set of values and, other pl- and different places have different values. So, right. for, exam- so for example, in... In London, it is at the moment anyway, you know, a, a city quite obsessed with money and, you know, career success and buying a house and getting married and kind of accumulating all of those things. And so lots of my friends, you know, were, who I'd, you know, graduated from university with, um, had you know, were sort of barreling down that path and it never really felt right for me. So I was kind of trying to live my own independent freelance life, but feeling like I didn't really fit in. So I sort of decided, yeah, that I needed a change. Um, and so I basically decided to pack my bag and, and sort of start in Paris. I kind of thought Paris is it's only two and a half hours away from London by train. So, you know, it's not far. I can always come back if I need to. And I actually only planned on staying here for a couple of months. But um, the way things worked out, sort of three years later, I'm still here. So, But sort of living around around other parts of Europe when I can as well. Well, there could be worse places to live than Paris. That is for sure. That is true. Um, it's not, not the easiest place in the world, actually. But it's still, I don't know, it is, it is, it's obviously giving me something that I didn't have in London. London was a time of feeling very creatively frustrated that I had these ideas for things, but I couldn't get them off the ground. And actually, the stuff that I kind of do now only really started once I came here. So in fact, one, I think one of the things that did help actually was that when I first moved here, I couldn't really speak any French at all. I started taking some lessons, but I couldn't really speak it. And it's such a strange thing living somewhere where you know, even buying a croissant, even something as simple as that is fraught with, you know, the potential for embarrassment and humiliation, hmm. you know, because they, you, you, you can rehearse the words like, you know, I'm, I want to, you know, je vais pas un croissant or whatever. And right. if they ask one question back that you're not expecting, you're completely flawed. You're like, um, I don't know what, the, what you're saying. Right. So there was lots of that, you know, for months when I first arrived of just not, of basically not understanding what was going on. And I found that quite a... Uh, a, a mind-shifting experience, I think. You know, in London, you know, I lived in London. It was kind of where I was born, and I knew London, and I was just very comfortable there, and I kind of felt like I knew everything. And then suddenly to be in Paris, where re- I realised I didn't know anything. It, I had a year uh, when I was first moved here of opening my mind a bit more and questioning. You know, if I'm wrong about this, what else am I wrong about? And I think that eventually got me towards doing the videos and things that I do now. I can't help but think that your story about going to Paris and living there for the first time is like a metaphor or an analogy for being an artist in some way. Mm. What do you think about that? That's interesting. Um, Well, I think there's definitely a connection in the sense that I think I sort of sit with the, you know, lots of people debate about what, whether something's art or not. Um, And I think I sort of sit with the very broad kind of Seth Godin definition, which is that, you know, art equals risk. So it doesn't matter what it is. You know, art isn't just, you know, using a paintbrush or, you know, a film camera. It can be anything as long as the person doing it is kind of taking a leap of faith and trying harder than they need to and working for connection more. And the more I do this, the more I kind of see truth in in that sense that being uncomfortable and yeah, living with risk, sort of leaping towards the unknown and the risk is kind of where art gets made. And yeah, so perhaps in some way I was taking a blind leap. I had to somehow I had to do it literally as well as, as kind of metaphorically in order to get here. Well, yeah. And, and then when you also when you take it even further, when you think about the idea of going to someplace new, let's say if you were to uh, use that as a metaphor for starting something new, a new piece of art. Uh, a new craft, let's say, and as you continue to learn it, when you're first dipping your toes in it, 
and you come across other people who are in that art. So like you're starting filmmaking for the first time and you come across other filmmakers and they start talking to you about, I don't know, your favorite movies or what did you think of the latest Coen Brothers film? Or they you know say, you know, what do you think about, um, you know, the works of Ophuls or some filmmaker from, you know, the mid 20th century that you have absolutely no idea about. And then you kind of feel, I don't know, I think you could feel like the way you felt when you were first in Paris, maybe. Absolutely. And, uh, and, you know, in that way is growth, isn't it? I suppose as well, when you're, yeah. you know, yeah, exactly. If someone asks you about a filmmaker, you don't know, you have to go and find out who they are. Yeah. Um, or, you know, you learn who they are, you know, somehow. And so, yeah, you grow as a person. And I think, yeah, this has been a, has definitely been a growing experience for me. I think I, 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 I think I do it again, actually. There is yeah. something that's quite, those first few months were, in my kind of, you know, through the rose-tinted glasses anyway, which is so exciting, actually, yeah. Just that kind of, very, they're very vivid in my memory because it was so kind of emotionally um, extreme, you know, the ups and downs of it. Which uh, part of Paris do you live in? So right now, I've lived kind of all over. Right now, I'm in uh, Bastille. Um, mm. I don't know if you know Paris, but it's sort of towards the east um, in the 11th arrondissement. Yeah. Well, Paris is like my wife and I's favorite city. We've we've been there twice. We went for the first time on our 10-year anniversary a few years ago. We all went as a family. Uh, New Year's. Well, we actually were in London, New Year's, going from 2014 to 2015. And so mm -hmm. we were in London in that area for a few days. And then we went to Paris. And, and we're actually going there again uh, uh, in March. Uh, if you're still around, I'd love to connect with you in person if you're still there Hey, that would be fantastic, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am. I'm here. I'm away for one weekend in March, but otherwise, I'm in town. So I'm I'd sorry, love to not get March, a... April. April. April is um, also fine too. Yeah. Okay. That's I absolutely. will. Yeah, I'll email you afterwards. That'd be. That would yeah, be, that'd, that'd be, be that'd really be cool. Awesome, actually. Yeah, um, fantastic. Well, I, you know that I uh, I had first saw one of your videos. They were talking about your um, uh, painting in the dark. Um, um, video essay on the Digital Convergence podcast, which is a show I've been on and a show I like to listen to with Carl Olson. And I was checking it out. And of course, you know, I thought it was great and wonderful and insightful. And I'm a sucker for insightful, poignant, uh, either essays or blog posts or films about creativity and art and so forth. And so, you know, to learn that when you've been doing, you've been doing this for a while. So you you said that going to Paris and that experience is what kind of got you started doing these kind of video essays. Um, was there anything else in particular that prompted you to start that down that path? I actually kind of came up with an original idea a long time ago about, I think it was in 2008 when I still had a day job. And I remember being in this day job and I was working as a, as a radio reporter and I was trying to do something else. And I got excited by this idea, but, it, but, um, I kind of got stopped every time I tried to develop it because I had this idea that I that um, that there must be a way to kind of reinvent the history documentary. Sounds as you know a very kind of silly thing, but uh, I studied history in university, and um, mm -hmm. and the idea it felt to me, and it still does feel to me, that it's a genre that is kind of ripe for reinvention. That it's kind of full of of kind of cliches, you know, these kind of documentaries about. World War Two and Nazis and, you know, kind of military music and talking heads and all this type of stuff. And I got quite excited about the idea of using good storytelling and using online video to try and breathe some fresh light into it. But every time I tried to sit down with a pen and sketch out what, what you know, a new kind of history thing might look like, I came up against the same problems, which was, you know, that the people that you might interview are dead um, and the stories that you might want to tell have already happened so you can't film them right. so you are basically left with the cliche stuff with you know archive footage and you know zooming into paintings and and talking heads with old historians so <laughs> right. uh, so I always got stuck with it for quite a long time and then um, so that was always there that was the first piece it was sort of just in the back of my head as an unsolved problem one thing as well that I think ended up sort of being the catalyst for it. And I say this knowing that I'm in, in good company um, because I, having listened to um, previous episodes of your podcast, I know you're a fan of him. Ira Glass talking yeah. about the gap and 
everything and you know that very famous video i know you've talked about it on here before sure um there's a great bit in there where he where you know he um he says you know that if you want to tell stories you've got to um and you want to be good at it you've got to find a way to force yourself to tell a new story every week or every month or right, whatever. Right, right. And I knew what in that sort of year after arriving in France that, you know, the the thing, the the kind of gap in my knowledge was definitely storytelling technique. I didn't I knew this was something that was important and that I needed to understand more about, but I'd never been taught, you know, how a story worked. Hmm. Um and so I realized you know I wanted to, I needed to learn and answer some of these questions about, you know, narrative design and everything like that. So I kind of pieced that with, you know, with what with what Ira said and I realized I need a project that is going to force me to create something new, tell a new story every month, you know, or something to that effect. And, and, you know, I don't have many resources. I can't really go out and film things. I can't go out and do fiction. What do I have access to? Well, you know, I know there's loads of free archive footage on the internet. I know there's loads of free pictures around. I can do motion graphics. You know, what can I do with this? And then that's where that little history seed kind of popped back up again and said, you know, hello, can I, uh, can I be of use? And I sort of suddenly saw that actually maybe I could, um, I could do something with this. And I think the the final piece that kind of, clicked it together was it, just the the word or the the phrase video essay which when I started this wasn't really a, a word that was many people had sort of started using but you know there was Kirby Ferguson um, I don't know if you've heard of him who who did a series called everything is a remix which was you know super viral series about uh, creativity and 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 the origin and kind of the the origins of ideas oh yeah um, he uh he was actually a guest on my last podcast series i used to do a podcast called crossing the 180 which was a more traditional one-on-one interview style and he his was one of my favorite episodes and we talked about that film he's great isn't he and so smart and yeah. so this idea of a video essay suddenly really leapt out to me at the crucial time because for some reason it feels to me now and it, it still does as a much more free uh and undefined concept so you know if i were to say i was going to make a history documentary then suddenly all of these you know kind of preconceptions immediately present themselves you know the talking heads and all of the things i mentioned earlier on but a video essay is seems seems to me anyway to be free of that um it's just much more purely mm-hmm. the, you know using the filmic form to convey an idea and that's literally all it is and then what you do with that suddenly you know suddenly a world of possibilities open up about how the visual uh you know the video medium or the film medium or just visual storytelling generally can be used to convey an idea so once i had that term as well suddenly i was freed of any kind of previous conceptions and i i think i felt that okay i had something i had something i wanted to make i had something i needed to make and i was now free from any previous conceptions and and able to create something that i felt at least was was new well that's that's interesting adam because i mean when you get down to brass tacks i don't know if that's a term they use in london but here in the united states that means like when you just get mm. to the bottom of it what you're making are documentaries i mean that's what they are. And it almost seems like that semantic difference in how you referred to it gave you a different perspective on it. Yeah. I mean, that allowed certainly... you to um, actually start making them. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I, I think, yes, you're right. It's All it is is, is a semantic difference. And yet somehow it unlocked a door that had been locked for, you know, kind of seven years, six years previous. And it's interesting that you say they they are documentaries. I guess they they carry a lot of similarities with documentaries. Hmm. Although I like to think um that there is potential to break away from that. To break and away from what? From documentary um mm-hmm. into something in my mind's eye there's something else that hasn't been made yet that's that's a that's a bit further away from from uh the kind of traditional concept of a documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't been able to start sort of um, foraging into that space yet, but it's something, I, I think there's something there that I can't quite define. You're really right, it's just semantics, but this word, this phrase video essay, I feel gives me a bit more freedom to go and explore what that might look like. Well, sure. And I mean, even the documentary format has really evolved over the years. I mean, when mm-hmm. I think about the kind of documentaries 
that I like to watch now or some of the ones that have gotten acclaim over the past few years. Like some of the ones that are popular on Netflix now, you know, one is the, I don't know if it's in the UK or if in Paris, but Making a Murderer is really popular yeah. on Netflix. The Jinx on HBO. Those feel like traditional documentaries, but they have kind of like the storytelling feel. Certainly, you know, documentaries are definitely starting, uh, or maybe not even starting. I'm sure they've been doing it for a long time, but... But yes, traditional documentaries are in recent years definitely upping their narrative game, if you like. Yeah, I, for I, sure. you know, I, th- I think I think The Imposter was probably the first film, the first documentary I saw that really did something interesting with the story it had. Um, I haven't seen Making a Murderer yet. Um, in fact, I was actually having a Skype with Kirby Ferguson just a week ago, and he was like, "You have to watch Making a Murderer." So I think I might be the last person in the world he hasn't seen it yet, but um, I will try and do it. And, you know, of course, things like Serial and, and you know, This American yeah. Life Radio Lab show sure. that, you know, and, and you know, uh, I think as well as Kirby, um, you know, This American Life and Radio Lab were both inspirations, I think, for what I do, because they sort of showed that, yeah, you can be creative with the way you present information, not just presenting it in a linear way, but looking for ways to you know, perhaps manipulate, perhaps deceive the audience in order to surprise them and intrigue them and, you know, to deliver information in a more compelling way. Yeah, yeah. So are are doing these video essays, is that your like primary like source of income and job or are they just passion projects that you do on the side? Like what's your, I guess, what's your main gig as a, sure. as, a as an artist and a creator? Well, when I, when I started out, it was just a just a passion project, and I was pretty much just sort of working as a freelance video producer, I suppose I'd call myself. Um, I mean, I started out as a video journalist when I first went freelance, and just moved more into post production over the years. And being in being out of the UK, all of my clients are either in the UK or the US, really. So post production lends itself to my kind of nomadic lifestyle, I suppose. So I, I was sort of doing a lot of yeah either animations or post-production work on, you know, films for NGOs and things like that. Um, And that sort of kept me going for the first couple of years. And then really in the last, I suppose really it's this year that I've tried, I'm trying to kind of, at least in the number of hours I do anyway, make my video essays, my my full-time gig and then sort of dipping my toes into, into little projects here and there to basically kind of keep the wolf from the door. And I've also started just recently on Patreon as well, about five months ago. Um, and it's still very early days. It's not an income. And for me, in fact, it's, we could talk about this later if you like, but it's the purpose of it isn't really necessary to, to bring in an income either. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, sort of little, you know, piece by piece, these kind of things come together. And the other thing as well that's actually sustained me really well over the years is um, education in different forms. I was a, a lecturer in, in video journalism when I was living in London hmm. and I've continued to do um, uh, workshops and, you know, one day courses. I did a bit of lecturing here in Paris and I'm also just this year teaching at the Oatley Academy of Visual Storytelling, which is a, a great online kind of teaching hub, if you like, for, right. for Disney animators and Pixar animators run by Chris Oatley. So there's all these kind of little things that I, I've always, I've always found having a a kind of, I think they call it a portfolio income, sort of uh, lots of different things right. has always suited my my mindset, I think, doing a little bit of hit, this and a little bit of that, yeah. um, you know, kind of, um, yeah, kind of suits the way I think. Do you, do you get commissioned to do your video essays, any of your video essays, or are they all just ones that you come up with on your own? All of them so far, well, in fact, actually, um, it has been a mix. So the first year I did them, they were all my own mm-hmm. um and i did five in my first year and then that was 2014 last year um i got approached by fusion it's a online platform and a cable channel actually um that's run by univision in the u.s mm-hmm. um yeah i saw and, your video you did for them yeah so i did a, i did a series of films for them all through last year so they were all kind of commissioned effectively but they gave me lots of freedom in terms of the subjects I chose. And then this year, I'm going back to doing them for myself. I'm just trying to build up my own audience, I suppose. Although there's one film that actually I'm just finishing this week that has been supported by a organization in Germany. And it's going to be about the refugee crisis. I was very hesitant to do it, partly because of the subject matter, um, but also because I kind of thought this year I want to do more of my just try and just try and do my own films independently and, and push it as far as I can go. But the 
he, the person who, who approached me about it is one of my supporters on Patreon. So it kind of made me consider the idea a bit more. And yes, it's been a challenging one, this actually, but um, we'll see how it turns out next week. So, you know, one of the, or the main topic that we're exploring this season is how an artist finds his or her voice and how they develop a signature style. And it seems the video essay format is becoming, I don't, I don't know if it's becoming more popular or if it was always popular and I'm just discovering it, but it seems like I'm seeing more of them. And, you know, one of my favorites, which I'm sure you heard of, is Every Frame a Painting. Have you heard of that one? Yes, I'm a big fan. Tony's uh, yeah. Tony does a great job of those. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been trying to get him on the show, but he doesn't do interviews, so I don't know. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, we'll see. I'll keep badgering him. <laughs> <laughs> but... And I've seen other ones on YouTube, obviously. So, you know, for you, Adam, how would you, if someone were to ask you, okay, what separates your video essays from Tony's or some of these others that I've seen on YouTube, how would you describe, like, how would you distinguish an Adam Westbrook video essay from somebody else's? Great question. Well, first of all, you know, I think just to answer what you kind of asked, slightly early on in your question, I think you're right. The video essay as a thing is definitely growing in popularity now. It's going through, I think, maybe the start of a little mini renaissance. Uh, although, in fact, you know, the, the essay film has been around since the start, I suppose, since, mm-hmm. the, you know, there's, you know, Alan René in the 40s and 50s and Chris Marker in the 70s and 80s, um, people like Mark Cousins, um, who've been doing them in the last kind of 10 years. Uh, so they've always been around, but always on the fringes, I suppose, of, you know, cinema and, and popular film, um, because they're always quite experimental. And they've always, and that's kind of why I like them, I suppose. They've, they've always been made by people who've approached them by asking what can the filmic form do mm-hmm. to convey ideas. Right. And so, um, and that's kind of, yeah, I suppose, like I said earlier, one of the appeals of the, of the form for me. And I think perhaps that might be what separates then an Adam Westbrook essay from some of the other people. I think there's, I think there's a, a, a genre separation. I think there are perhaps two, at the moment, there seems to be two kinds of video essays oh, okay. um, that are being made. Um, or there are two different things being made and they're both being called video essays by the people who <laughs> make them. There's, first of all, there's the Tony, Tony Jew and the, um, you know, um, you might put the nerd writer in there and uh, a few others um, that are popular as well that are sort of, video essays that are film analyses so they are literally essays about video almost mm-hmm. um and they are analytical um and they and they just talk about film technique you know tony i think is at the top of that group he's sort of the one who's the most kind of original and, um, and distinctive in that group but there's right. some other really good ones in there so there's that group that sort of i'm going to make essays about cinema about film and then the other half um, or the other group which is a lot smaller actually is the group I'd put myself in, which is people who, yeah, are trying to just use video as a way to express an idea. Um, and this is a, it is a smaller group, and I think that's a shame, actually. I put myself in it, and Kirby Ferguson, I think, is in that too. But actually, there aren't that many other people. I think a lot of people who are seeing the kind of growth of the video essay are leaping straight, or not leaping, but they're deciding to do essays about cinema which is fine but i think it's a shame that more people yet aren't seeing video as you know its own form of kind of expression as a as, a, as an alternative to blogging for example as a way of kind of conveying mm-hmm. ideas in a, in a new language and i suppose the other thing actually the, the other kind of category that perhaps i'm that's kind of orbiting is the that's also very popular is the explainer Oh yeah, you know, course, so, yeah. you know, loads of kind of explainer channels from you know Kurzgesagt and CGP Grey and you know perhaps the Vlog Brothers, and that's another kind of close grouping that again I'd say I'm dis- I'm uh, distinctive from, um, in the sense that they aim to convey an idea or to convey information, but they're not interested in in the storytelling in narrative. So they're more like video textbooks. Um, so they're very dense, full of information, mm-hmm. and then the information is delivered in a very, you know, linear, organised fashion. So they start at A and then B and then C and then D, and you know that's great. I think for you know it's aimed at you know people who are studying a subject and you know need the information quickly. For me, then I I'd say I'm separate from that. I'm much more of an emphasis on 
on narrative and story design. That's something I spend a lot of time doing in the kind of process in the in the making of these essays. Hopefully, I like to think thinking more visually about about a subject and sort of yeah, asking what can the language of film do to convey the idea rather than you know sort of approaching it the, the other way around. I think perhaps you know there's a difference in process. Mm-hmm. A lot of the other essays that I've seen talk about their work, they often start with a script that's kind of the first thing that they'll do mm-hmm. is is write a write literally a written essay and then they'll record it and then they'll put images over their words but it starts from a place of of words um for me actually the script is the last thing i do interesting um, really after everything else i i um do lots of story design um i work out my scenes and then i storyboard or do previs or something like that. And then only once I've done that, will I actually start writing a script. So that's perhaps a distinction as well. Whether that shows up in the final result, I don't know, but I like to think it does. How did you come about doing it that way? Because it definitely doesn't seem intuitive that you would like do a storyboard and all these other things first versus like even having a treatment even. Yeah, well, there's there's a, always a treatment first. Oh, you um, treatment, yes, okay. in fact, one of the first things I do is sort of open up just like a document in IA Writer or Scrivener or something like that, and just sort of just start free writing about what well, the rough idea, this kind of nebulous concept I might have in my head, and then try and over time sort of whittle it down while I'm reading and you know and trying to figure out what it's about. The first thing for me is trying to figure out what what is the kind of singular idea that it's going to lead to what Robert McKee might call the controlling idea, the kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, the, the, what is the one kind of thematic point that says something about, you know, love life in the universe that this is leading to. And so once I figured that out, I then almost try and work backwards from there. Okay. If that's where I'm going to end, if that's where this essay is going to end, where's it going to start in order to kind of create the most interesting journey for the audience so once i've got that i I often start that and then i'll create a sort of one pager a sort of global map of the story with what's going to happen in each kind of act if you like and then try and look at it scene by scene and from there come the storyboards and i'll make notes about script lines um that i might come up with in my head while i'm doing this but the reason i do it this way is because i want to see you know how much can film do before i have to bring the words in i'm a bit like um or not a bit like but i'm sort of inspired if you like a bit by the way hitchcock used to think oh you know, what ways well he used to talk about um you know pure cinema and how you know for him the silent movies were kind of you know cinema at its you know he would say purist and that and he was, I think, one of those people that kind of argued that dialogue kind of ruined movies. Um, it's really interesting, actually. I, I uncovered this book in the library about, I don't know, eight months ago. Mm-hmm. And um, and it showed actually Hitchcock had quite an interesting division of labor when he was working on a film. So what would today be the job of a screenwriter? He, in well, certainly for some of his early films, was divided among three people. He would divide it among three people? Yeah. So he would hire someone called a constructionist. Um, And I'd never heard of this term before. I don't think, I think it's been completely forgotten. But there was someone called a story constructionist. And often they were a playwright or a dramatist who just understood the, the nuts and bolts of a story, the major plot points, and, you know, knew how their dramatic arc worked. And they would come in first once he had an idea of what the story was, and they would plot out the the bare bones of the story he would then take the story from there and he would storyboard himself Hmm. uh, hitchcock always did his storyboards very elaborately and in detail and only then once he'd storyboarded and worked out what the storyboards were capable of would he then pass it to a dialogue person to basically fill in the gaps but here's what the boards can't convey you do everything else and for him that was the way of getting closer to you know, the filmic form and what and what film's capable of. And I kind of was really inspired by that. And I wanted to see and I still want to see whether that whether that's possible for the sort of work I do. I mean, it's a challenge because so much of what I do is trying to convey actual tangible, you know, facts and information. And so, you know, there has to be quite a lot of voiceover. Um, But I'm trying I I find if I if I put the voiceover as the last thing that I do, Mm -hmm. then I've at least allowed myself to really consider, you know, what can the juxtaposition of images and different and different visual ideas do to convey points before the words come in? And the idea, the ideal for me is that 
you know, I have a low word count compared to, you know, um, the length of the film. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you were mentioning Hitchcock. He's actually one of the filmmakers we're going to be discussing in the series that we're doing about filmmakers with style. And Mm. you get a sense from Hitchcock that he has a very determined viewpoint. Like he's, he's very like particular, like where he puts the camera and how he like what he shows you and what he doesn't show you. And I, I wonder if that stems from that, that, that methodology of that, of him putting the story together in the first place of how he puts it together in the first place. I think so. I think he was very methodical. And, you know, there are definitely flaws to that technique because, you know, if you storyboard everything in advance, I imagine anyway in, you know, in shooting a drama, you limit the scope for improvisation, I suppose, and for those kind of happy accidents to happen on set. I I remember I was reading recently uh, Andre Tarkovsky's Sculpting in Time, and he kind of criticizes Hitchcock a bit saying, you know, if you if you are going to plan everything out then you kind of don't really allow, you, you know, you don't give the actors a nice space in which, within which to kind of develop their own feel for the story. So there's, you know, I guess it's horses for courses. But, you know, to his credit, I think Hitchcock, uh, the one thing that's definitely true is that he always considered in a lot of detail what the audience were going to be thinking mm-hmm. at any given time. And in fact, that's something that's very nicely conveyed in the film they made, the biopic they made of him a few years ago with Anthony Hopkins. In the kind of climax, the climactic scene of the film is the premiere of Psycho. And um, Hitchcock himself doesn't go into the theatre to watch the film. He kind of stands out, he sort of lingers out in the hallway by the door to the cinema. He's sort of peering by the door just as the shower scene, the iconic shower scene begins. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great because um, we see Hitchcock listening for, you know, the kind of eh, eh, eh noises as that kind of scene starts and we hear the audience screaming. And Hitchcock starts, or Anthony Hopkins as Hitchcock, starts basically conducting with his hands. And every time he raises his hands up, the audience scream. And um, every time it goes down, the knife goes in and then he raises his hands up and the audience scream again. And it's this lovely kind of, demonstration of the fact that Hitchcock could basically play us like a violin, right? (laughs) He knew exactly how to manipulate our emotions and he knew exactly what we'd be thinking and how to use that to his advantage. Um, And this even shows up in this amazing uh, uh, kind of psychological research where they've done MRI scans of people's brains as they're watching various films. uh, I think the, the one I'm thinking of, they had... Um, these patients watching an episode of Hitchcock's Half an Hour mm-hmm. um, alongside famous spaghetti western by Sergio Leone, I think, and then an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And they found that people's brains reacted consistently when watching, a Hitch- watching the Hitchcock film. They, they all fired certain neurons and chemicals at exactly the same time whereas the other films didn't really elicit such a coherent response. And I think that's sort of testament, scientific testament, if there could be any, to Hitchcock's ability to sort of, yeah, sort of, um, you know, play us like a puppeteer almost. And, you know, I think it, t- it does take a lot of kind of preparation and, and um, you know, methodical working to achieve that. Wow, that's fascinating. I was like a guest contributor on a YouTube show that's coming up called Hitch 20. And it's a filmmaker who looks who's looking at, you know, the Hitchcock show Hitchcock presents, and the mm. specifically the 20 episodes that were directed by Hitchcock himself. And oh, kind of okay. like, yeah, kind of because I, I guess apparently he didn't direct all of them. And then kind of breaking them down and seeing what is different about those particular episodes from the other non Hitchcock directed ones. And I mean, one of the things that I, you know, noticed and I commented was just the placement of the camera and, you know, how very exacting it seemed to be. And, but, you know, hearing your commentary about, you know, people's brains and how how they react when watching Hitchcock films is fascinating, you know, for sure. So these video essays that you do uh, look like, (laughs) look like a lot of work. Like how long is it, (laughs) like how long, I mean, you probably don't have an average, but like, how long does it take you to do one of those things? Yeah, well, I um, I don't know. I actually haven't counted the hours, but on average, they take the quickest I've managed to turn one around is a month of pretty much full time work. And 
the longest has taken me about two to three months, but that's when I've been perhaps juggling another, you know, freelance project at the same time. So I'd say on average from start to finish, once I sort of commit to starting to make a particular episode, probably somewhere between six and eight weeks of near full-time work. Wow. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting though is actually the the stuff that you think takes the longest actually is probably not the majority of it. Things like the animation and the editing. Uh, uh, like, for instance, in this last film that I'm finishing now, the kind of actual production was only about two weeks of that eight weeks. And the majority of it is in the story design and the previs and stuff like that. And, and a little bit on the research, depending on, on what the subject is. But yeah, they do take a while. So I guess the, the, the immediate question that comes to mind that I know people listening are, I know a question I would have is, like, how do you, like, if, if they're not like your primary source of income right now, like, how do you find or justify the time to put in six to eight weeks of near full-time work on a, on a project like that? Yeah, absolutely. There are two separate questions, which is sort of one, like, how do you, which I'm guessing you're, you're I'm guessing you're asking. One is like, yeah, how do you eat? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, not just that, but like, how do you survive? Yeah, and also, but, survive, but yeah. also why bother? Why bother investing this much time in, in something that doesn't necessarily bring any out, you know, the bring any sort of direct rewards perhaps. Well, um, but, and perhaps, you know, well, perhaps say, before, people well, actually, before you answer that, the second one, uh, frankly enough, like I think at least for me, and I, I, I would guess for my listeners that, they probably understand the why bother. Like we know as artists, like what it is that drives us to do the kind of work we do, and oftentimes without any financial reward. Like I don't even so much know if there is a mystery as to why someone, because the work mm -hmm. is, I mean, look, it's fascinating. It's, and I mean, I think all of us would work full time on the kind of projects that we work, our passion projects without pay if we could. So we know mm -hmm. the, we know the, the answer as to why. I think that it's the how. It's like, how do you find the time to put in that kind of work that currently doesn't like pay all the bills that you have? Like, how do you balance that and whatever it is your, your main day job is until the point where your video essays can pay for everything that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, it's a mixture of a few things. Sure. So, and um, one of them, it has to be said, is by, you know, uh, living very cheaply, <laughs> which I'm not not ashamed to admit. No, one of no, the benefits of you know of living in Paris compared to London, anyway, for me was that um, is that it's a lot cheaper to live here. Is it really? Uh, I would oh, never absolutely. have guessed that. Yeah, people don't think it is, but actually, London is uh, a lot more expensive, especially on things like accommodation and travel. It we're you know sort of talking about a twofold or a threefold increase. London's uh, a Far, uh, is now is now prohibitively expensive That's and in crazy. fact it's a whole separate you know story or interview really but you know as a result the artistic soul of london is all but dead um it's oh. now a city of you know a city of bankers and <laughs> pr people and you know it's other cities like berlin and barcelona you know which are now which are still affordable and still make life possible for artists to live that are you know the kind of beating heart of this side of the Atlantic anyway. Um, and, you know, for the record, I think, you know, if, if I wasn't in love with a French girl, I'd totally be in Berlin right now. It's <laughs> cheaper than Paris. Uh, ooh la la. <laughs> yeah. But, um, uh, you know, for the time being, I've, you know, I can save a lot of money by being here. And that's something I've always kind of been good at since I've gone freelance is, you know, I have to admit, you know, I'm not a successful freelancer, right? I'm not... Um, you know, and certainly the way I, I think, you know, you can look at the what, what I'm doing with my video essays and it looks very bizarre to an outside observer. So, for example, I'm not really trying to turn it into a successful YouTube channel. You know, I'm not really I'm not producing videos fast enough and I'm not producing about things that are, you know, kind of monetizable enough and audience growing enough. So that's, you know, not sort of something I'm trying to do. I'm not a brilliantly successful, you know, freelancer. I, I, I haven't got uh, got to a place where I can somehow charge, you know, $50,000 for, 
for you know turning up somewhere to to kind of deliver a workshop or anything like that or to you know do post-production on a film or anything but I just about get enough whereby I have a buffer if you like in front of me Mm -hmm. I've actually got to a stage now where I almost see money as time Hmm. you know so uh, if I get you know when I get paid for you know a gig for example the last of the film that I'm just finishing now I sort of see it as how many months extra does this buy me for the time being how much extra breathing space do I get from this and that's not a long-term strategy I'm sure there are lots of people listening to this shaking their heads wondering why on earth I I, I do it this way I thought I think I've made a decision that you know I, I searched for so long for something for a creative outlet that you know, satisfied me and that I, that, and challenged me and excited me and I saw potential in and, you know, delivered all of those kind of things that I, and I want to get better at. That now I finally have it, I feel as long as I can, I'm going to hold on to it and just, and just ride that, you know, horse until it falls over. Um, you know, it might be that, you know, I work full time on these essays throughout the year and at the end of the year, I've just run out of money and they've not brought, they're not bringing in enough money to keep me going. Uh, if so, so be it. And actually I think I'd rather just like get a job in a bar or something and try and work on it, you know, or find some other income that allowed me to keep working on this because I don't know, Perhaps it's what we were saying earlier, you know, about art and risk that people because people always say, you know, I think I think this is one of the kind of misconceptions about creativity. And it's something I wrestled with. I wasted so many years with that kind of lie of I will start making my own stuff just as soon as I earn enough money, just as soon as um, I've got enough time. All I need to do is, you know, uh, get a few more gigs and then I'll have the time or the or the money to do this and the lie is of course that you know the right amount of time or, or the right time or the right amount of money or the right whatever whatever just never arrives it's never going to and you just have to get on with it and and do it anyway and i don't know perhaps having this kind of slight seat of pants element to it gives it a you know adds this risk into it that just makes it keeps it alive i suppose i mean certainly i'm talking as a you know young childless uh i don't have any dependents or anything sure uh, I, I don't have any debt um so i have that i have to admit i have those you know freedoms but at the same time i am sort of living only off what i i earn and yeah i don't know i think that it was the, it's the sort of thing that would have terrified me six years ago when i first went freelance and now i've just got to a stage of being more comfortable with taking that risk because at least then I can say at the end if I do run out of money like at least I rode that to the end at least I did give it my all I gave it the full time and you know and hopefully sort of learn something from doing that I think that is uh terrific you know one of the things that I've talked about on other podcasts and I've written about this is and I think it's related to that myth you're talking about is the sense that I think sometimes artists and filmmakers automatically feel like they have to earn a living or have their primary source of income be the art that they're doing. So if they're a filmmaker, they feel like they have to become a freelance filmmaker or if they're a photographer, become a freelance photographer and, you know, they you have to do it full time. And, you know, so often I encourage artists that you can probably get more artistic and creative fulfillment from your art if you just keep it as a passion project as a side project as opposed to trying to make a living out of it because there are going to be times when if it is become if it does become your sole source of income you're gonna have those clients who are gonna give you work that doesn't really fulfill you and you're gonna have to do it and sometimes it makes you even hate your art because you're doing something that you don't really like or it's really hard to find income doing what you truly have to do full-time but if you're able to find something on find like a job that like covers all your bills, then you have the time to, you know, do what you love on the side. Like I always encourage people, you know, like, like there's no shame in just doing that because we usually get started in this line of work because we're passionate about the art, not necessarily because we want to become rich or anything. 
uh, I have a, a good friend of mine in London. She is um, a novelist. Um, and well, in fact, she's an aspiring novelist in the sense that she's, she's written two novels, but um, she's yet to, to sort of have publishing success. And so, you know, to be rewarded for her work. But she te- has taken that exactly same approach where she's found a job that she can do and she enjoys but that doesn't tax her in the slightest and you know frees her you know gives her or leaves her with the the mental energy at the end of the day to write for a couple of hours and you know just two hours a day over a long period of time in fact I've got two other friends who've who've also written novels by this exact same method you know sort of just fitting it in around another job and I think you're right you know we have to it it, we don't necessarily have to make money directly from what we do I think you know it's one of the the unfortunate hangovers of the industrial revolution and you know the the kind of um working world that has that existed for all of the 20th century and won't survive the 21st century is this you know very tight connection in our minds between work and money you know we assume the only way to make money is to work for it um and that um the only work that's worth doing is work that brings in money and actually they don't they they can be severed and i suspect in the future i i say this now because i it's a it was the subject of an essay a video essay i made last year about the idea of a universal basic income you know the idea Mm -hmm. that one day in this century um we will be paid a living wage by the government without needing to work for it because it will be you know the most common sense solution to technological unemployment and and other things that are kind of coming our way um and so yeah hopefully free a lot more people to just pursue risk risky creative projects you know without worrying about you know who's going to pay the bills and you know part i think that is one of the the sticking points with it you know is that um is that we still assume that you have to do a job and and work in order to receive money. I don't think that's necessarily necessarily the case. I think just generally, um, you know, that relationship between art and money is such a difficult one. And I think it's one of those things where everyone everyone's going to have their own answer to it. It's almost like storytelling technique. Like everyone, there's no right or wrong way to do it. Everyone just finds the kind of combination that that works for them. And some people are really happy and really thrive on doing client projects. I totally empathize with what you said. I kind of don't. I often find client projects creatively frustrating and unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people find it's just worth, you know, doing their own thing and just working as a working in a bar or doing something completely different to pay the bills. There's no right or wrong way. Um, a patronage, I think. I'm really excited to see the return of patronage, actually, in things like Patreon, because mm-hmm. um, I think that is going to be a, you know, a, a third way in the future um, for artists, another opening for artists to kind of find the right balance. In light of what I was saying earlier, I have what I call my artist, my artistry maximization matrix. And it's like, a, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a quadrant of like four different areas that an artist can fall in, in order to maximize the amount of fulfillment that they get from their craft or from their art. And mm-hmm. it all, I uh, all, basically all lies on reducing the amount of input you get from someone else regarding your work. So I have one called the Sally Albright is where you just do your work on the side, like her character in the movie. Um, And you have some other job, like we said earlier, I have one, what I call the entertainer where you're a craft like the YouTube, like the YouTubers out there who get enough views where they can earn money from either sponsorships or advertising and whatnot. Um, and then I have one which I call the next guy, which is a reference to the um, the guy who designed the logo, um, Paul Rand, who designed the logo for the next computer. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he designed that logo, when Steve Jobs hired him to design that logo, Paul Rand he had he had done the logo for IBM and UPS, and he command any fee he wanted. And he basically told Steve Jobs, and this was in 1986, he told Steve Jobs, "My fee is a hundred thousand dollars. You get one." Basically, you get like one pass, take it or leave it, and I get paid either way. Um, and Steve <laughs> was willing to pay it because, you know, so if you get if you're the kind of artist where you can command any fee you want because people just love your work, then that's the way to go. Um, and then the other one is uh, where the benefactor, where you have somebody who just you know you're doing charity work or something, and there's some rich person who just kind of pays for you to 
I don't know, make video essays. Who knows? I think you definitely kind of like remind me of that kind of person. And you were saying earlier, you had commented that you don't see yourself as a successful freelancer. And it's interesting. Like, I would wonder what you would define as success because it seems like you were basing it on financial success. And I think from an artist standpoint, like for me, when I, and, and this goes to the whole grass is always greener thing, but you know, like I see you as this, you're this, you're this like young artist living in Paris, making these amazing uh, video essays that are getting, you know, a substantial number of views. You're in love and <laughs> you, you're not hungry and you're living in Paris. I mean, that is like quintessential yeah, success. It's not so bad, is it? <laughs> right. That's like... And you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. You know, it's, and we know when I said that earlier, it was, I was referencing, you, you got it straight on the head, you know, that the, you know, the kind of standard conception of what success is, the sure. standard, you know, um, status quo definition of what success is. And, you know, yes, by that measure, you know, I'm probably not, but you're right by another measure. I am. And I think by the measure that matters most, which is how I define success. Sure. I think it's just like you said, you know, for me, I feel very lucky right now, in fact, because, you know, at the moment, at least I get to wake up in the morning and do, you know, work on all day, the thing that I really love doing and really excites me. And, you know, I'm not stressed about yeah eating my dinner or you know paying the bills right now and you know and yeah I'm I'm happy and I'm in love and I'm in Paris I think you're right it has to be on how each of us choose to define our own success and there are so many more ways to define it than other than you know your status in society and your salary and your level of promotion and and all that type of thing and it's just a shame that you know that's you know that that's all something we have to almost unlearn as we're adults. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard the story of the NBA who goes down to the little Mexican village and he um, he finds the um, the fisherman who um, who has like this small fishing shop and all he does is fish all day. And the NBA who goes down there and basically they go through this long rig and roll about the NBA asking him, telling him how he can teach him to catch fish and to build this really successful fishing business where he can make millions of dollars selling his fish all over the world. And this NBA is going to teach him how to do that. And and the Mexican fisherman is asking him, well, why would I do that? And so, and then NBA ends up by saying that way, when you're rich and 20 years from now, you can retire and you can, and you can fish all day. <laughs> and it's what the guy was already doing in the first place. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, I think that's a great parable, isn't it? For how we, yeah. about for that point about how we get confused about work and money. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I love this conversation, Andrew. I could go on for days. Uh, let me ask you one other question. Uh, Cause I'm, I wanted to ask you about your, the video that you did about, uh, Van, I think it was about Van Gogh, painting, mm. painting in the dark, right? What was the most important lesson you, you learned as an artist from the research you did on Van Gogh? That's interesting. Um, I mean, the, the idea originated from almost like a, a nugget in something that Steve Pressfield wrote. I don't know if you've read any of his books about creativity, like oh, The yeah. War of Art. Or, you know, The War of Arts is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I, I always, think that I always I, call that there was the, the, the kind of controlling. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's and, and turning pro. The kind of follow up is very good as well. And I think the controlling idea for that film started in there, and then you know I connected it. I think when I read Flow and saw that word autotelic, I think that was when the spark was like, right, there's actually a word for this thing, and I can make a, a film out of it. I think actually in terms of for the rest of the research. You know, reading Van Gogh's letters, I read all of his letters to his brother, and that oh. was very eye-opening. Yeah, I, you know, I obviously couldn't really include much of that in the film, but I was very impressed by his. He was very stubborn, almost to the point of failure. You know, he he pushed a lot of people away with his stubbornness. He would, uh, you know, sort of be too confrontational and things like that but he was very passionate and he did believe and you know he stuck by his beliefs he wasn't trying to, he wasn't going to change the way he thought about the world or his work based on what was popular at the, at the time and i thought that was quite instructive and the other thing as well was just when i started work on this film i hired a desk in 
my friend's apartment in Paris. Mm-hmm. So a bit like a sort of, you can get co-working spaces here, but they're really expensive. And my friend had a spare room going and needed some extra cash. So we struck a deal and I would use his apartment as an office during the day. And so I turned up on the Monday and I started working on the film and was trying to figure out what it was going to be about. And then at lunchtime, went into his little Parisian kitchen and was making lunch. And I just saw on the wall, he had a poem sellotaped to the wall of his kitchen. And my friend Chris is that kind of guy, like he reads vociferously and loves poetry and stuff like that. Right. And it's a poem called East Coca by, uh, by T.S. Eliot. And it was such a fantastic stroke of luck because this poem is basically about what I was about to make a film about. Oh, really? Um, I recommend reading it. Um, it's uh, it's uh, this particular one. It's broken up into five parts. And this was the fifth part. So it's East Coca 5. And um, he talks about the creative process and how he, as a middle-aged man, has sort of felt that he's wasted the last 20 years of his creative, um, you know, opportunities basically and here he is as a middle-aged man and he doesn't really feel like he's he's got much to show for it and he then sort of talks about the kind of frustrations of the creative process and and how you know there's this great bit where he sort of says you know you kind of search for the right words to say something you want to say but as soon as you found the words you no longer want to say that point anymore. And I thought that was kind of brilliant. You know that once you've once you've answered the problem you you know you no longer kind of It's no longer a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, But it ends with the fantastic line that I almost put at the end of the film, but I took out in the end. He says, for us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. And for me, I was just like, I couldn't believe it on the first day of working on this film, trying to figure out exactly if I could just summarize in one single sentence what this film is going to be about. Suddenly there it was, sellotapes to the kitchen wall. You know, this this line, for us, there is only the trying, the rest is not our business. And um, yeah, I think for me, that was that was a takeaway that really informed where that film went in the end. And, and what do you think that means to you? Well, for me, it's a way of saying, you know, it's, it is about the process. The only reward is the doing it of, of whatever it is that you do itself. And it's particularly, it's the second bit that's mm-hmm. most resonant for me. The rest is not our business. The idea that um, everything else that comes with it, you know, you can never control whether people are going to like what you make. You know, it's not your job to say whether the next thing you make is going to be successful or people are going to like it. Right. It's, you You know, it's only for you to really say, oh, I done a good job today. Have I, um, you know, done the best that I can do? And in fact, the other ins- influence that was um i i really like david mamet's book on directing film mm-hmm. i think it's a real uh it's it's probably the most read the book i've read the most times and you know he puts it so well this idea that you know there is you basically have a very simple job and he's talking about directing films but it is you know to work out what the scene's about and then to shoot that and then you go home at the end of the day. And it doesn't matter whether people like your film, you will never be able to change their minds. But mm-hmm. can you look back at what you've made and say, you know, I worked out what the scene was about. I shot that and, you know, just presented that without any, sur- you know, sur- um, superfluous, I'm trying to say the word now. Superfluous, yeah. Superfluity. <laughs> yeah, can you? Yeah, that, you know, can you? Can you do that in its most essential way? And if you can, then great, you've done your job, and you go home, and that's all there is to it. And there's a, there's some kind of, there's something in that, in in what Stephen Pressfield said in T. S. Eliot's poem, and in what David Mamet writes. Somewhere hidden in amongst all that is just a sense of humility um, that I think is that doesn't get talked about enough. I think. It's very easy to think that what we do is somehow, well, glamorous or magical or special or I don't know, that there's some kind of untouchable thing about it. Perhaps there's some kind of conversation with the gods. I don't know. People come up with different mythologies and different kind of, you know, narratives, if you like, to Mm -hmm. sort of support them through this. But, you know, David Mamet uses the, the analogy of a shoemaker. Um, at one point in the book. And he says, you know, when you buy a shoe from someone, you don't want it to be interesting. You want it to be a a shoe. You know, you want it to work 
and fit to, and just, you know, keep your feet dry and not fall apart. Right. But in filmmaking, he's complaining that too many people try and make their films interesting. They try and make them unnecessarily complicated. And in fact, people don't want that. They just want a shoe that works. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, and I think that analogy... And, you know, if you if, you know, to almost to get back to what the essence of this conversation has been about, I suppose, about finding your style. I think for me, that is my compass in terms of finding developing a style. It's, um, you know, that the, that's what I when I look back at a film and I try and work out whether in my head it's been a success. It, it's down to that. Like, did was every scene there supposed to be there? Did I do every did I? tell every scene in the most essential way possible? Have I avoided any unnecessary interestingness? And if so, I can say that I've done my job well. And so, yeah, I think, you know, I see this as as a, as making shoes, you know? people When people buy your story, they want a story that works. They don't want a story that's interesting and falls apart at the edges. And for me, that that the humility that's in that, just the focus on being good at you, working out what you have, working out what you need to be good at and then being good at it as as you know as basically the most reduced simple form simplified form of what all of this is i find i found very kind of um instructive that is a brilliant place to end so i know i rambled on no that was I, I i was typing furiously to capture the notes that's definitely going <laughs> to go in the episodes this i knew uh that we would have a wonderful conversation and whenever they go over an hour that's when i know that they're really special so well, yeah, I, I've really enjoyed it from my end as well. I love, I love talking about this stuff. So yeah, me you. too. Now, aren't you glad we shared that whole interview with you guys? I sure hope you got out of it as much as I did. Thanks again to Adam for his time. You can see a couple of samples of Adam's work on the blog post for this episode, or you can go directly to the source and check out all of Adam's work at Delve. Dot TV. That's D-E-L-V-E dot TV. This episode of Radio Film School Raw was produced by me, Chris Heslich, and the infamous Ron Dawson. Yes, you heard me right. Ron isn't just famous, he's infamous. Radio Film School is a proud member of the Podcastica Network, a small collection of pop culture podcasts that cover topics from your favorite television shows to meditation and health to podcast production. This and other great shows can be found at podcastica.com, a cornucopia of podcasty goodness. Music for this episode was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to the tracks are in the show notes. Remember, you can support this show by becoming a premium member. For the monthly price equal to a large gourmet blended coffee, you not only support the show, but you get access to ebooks, templates, bonus episodes, discounts on other products and services, and resources to help you grow in your crafting career. Go to daredreamer.fm slash join to learn more. As we get close to the launch of Season 2, don't miss a beat. Subscribe to the show on iTunes to be notified of every new episode. Well, that's it for this week, kids. Thanks for joining me on this, hopefully, first of many solo podcasts. And remember, as Ron says every week, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with. Or cut it on. <laughs>